Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations. In the current COVID-19 crisis, our series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia's response and recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, www.cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Tom Craven. Today is October 28th, 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a part of our lives now for more than nine months, and we're a little over three months since the beginning of Victoria's second wave. This second wave has sadly cost the lives of more than 800 Victorians, and Australia has now experienced more than 900 COVID-related deaths from some 27,000 confirmed cases. However, the good news is that this week saw a welcome achievement for Victoria. For the past two days, Victoria has recorded no new cases. First time this has happened since June. Victoria is beginning to take steps to loosen the restrictions that have been in place since early August. However, the scale of the impact of those restrictions on employees and businesses and on the well-being of all Victorians continues. In particular, restrictions on movement remain in place. Melbournians are only permitted to travel within a 25-kilometre radius, and travel between metropolitan and regional Victoria is significantly restricted. The borders with other Australian states and territories remain largely closed, preventing most Victorians from leaving the state. These restrictions impact us all, but they have a day-to-day impact on the residents of the dozens of communities that live on the border, especially those communities on the Murray River, which forms part of our border with New South Wales. Our guest today is Luke Wilson. Luke is Victoria's cross-border commissioner. Cross-border commissioner works with border residents, businesses, community organisations and others to identify challenges and solutions along Victorian borders. Things like making it easier to do business across borders and addressing regulatory or other barriers that stop people accessing education, health, justice, other services in border communities. Luke, thanks for being a part of the conversation with us. Thanks very much, Tom. Can I start with just ask where you're speaking from today? I'm conscious you're outside of metropolitan Melbourne and I'm sure working flexibly and remotely is a pretty common part of the job of the cross-border commissioner, but what has physical distancing meant for you and your role and, and how have you found it? Yeah, well, I'm speaking today from Wodonga, so I'm based, live in Wodonga and based in Wodonga. As you say, the restrictions to a reasonable degree have been a bit, a bit lighter in rural and regional Victoria than than Melbourne, particularly uh, over the last little while. But in relation to the the role, whilst I'm based in Wodonga and the office is here, obviously I haven't been into the office for, I can't quite remember when, but also because the role deals with all of Victoria's borders. So normally I'm on the road nearly all the time. But again, that's also not really been possible for the last probably half a dozen months. The impact of the rules on the on the work side have been perhaps the same as in the city, where it's a very much a shift to the, you know, the electronic options, the Zooms and the Microsoft Teams and that sort of thing, and the, the car's been in the driveway for the most part, which is yeah you know, a, a little unfortunate for the role, but you know, it's just the, the world we're having to deal with at the moment. The other thing I'd point out is for myself and others who live in border areas, whilst the Victorian restrictions may have been a little lighter, we have at the same time had to deal with the New South Wales and South Australian restrictions, which do affect us. Personally, for a particular period, New South Wales, the the border zone they had defined was pretty thin. And if I sort of walked the dog more than about 500 metres south of my house, I would have actually lost my border permit. 
So whilst there was no rule saying I couldn't do that, but there was certainly a consequence for leaving the zone. Leaving the bubble. There you go. And how's your home office set up? I suppose you're glued to the phone, but uh, you've got loud background noises, dogs, anything like that. How's, how's your home office set up? Yeah, it's, a, it's not a dedicated office, but it's, it's not a bad setup. A desk in one of the TV rooms and a nice view out the front and the gardens. So that, that sort of works okay. But particularly when the kids were at home doing homeschooling, it certainly gave the Wi-Fi a workout. I mean, I'm in effectively suburban Wodonga, so we do have NBN, but not, not the form of NBN that we had back in the cities. You know, yeah, there were a few moments of <laughs> interesting challenge. I can imagine, and not an not an uncommon experience. I suggest. Why don't we start with? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the challenges that border communities face, and and a bit about your role? So, in what ways do border issues make life a bit more tricky for businesses and individuals in border communities than they need to be? Yeah, without even getting into the world of COVID, the general situation for people on the border is that you are quite naturally crossing the border back and forth for different services and shopping and work for some people or school. And yeah, during normal times, that, that's just a matter of fact. That that's what you do. You know, the communities along the border, the reasonably close communities are pretty well connected and people go back and forth. Now, that in itself is not a complication. That's, you know, that's just what you do. But it does then call out the various differences that each state has in their regulations or in the way their services are provided. And that's where it starts getting a little more complicated because, you know, you might start needing to navigate two types of system or two sets of rules or or whatnot. And those differences can be sometimes hard to sort of reconcile against one another. And it's not a case that, you know, one's wrong and one's right or anything necessarily. It's just that they're different. And so that's a layer of complication that you'll have to deal with either in your personal life or in your work life, depending which rules you're dealing with at the time. You were saying to be earlier, Victoria and New South Wales border in particular challenge more more so than other states really by the nature of the border following the Murray River and, and what that ends up meaning. Yeah, that's right. I think along here, because it's a river, that's quite naturally where people tend to congregate. And so you do get some fairly significant communities and obviously Aubrey Wodonga is the largest pairing, if you like. But there, there are pairings of various degree all the way along. You know, you get Cobram Baruga, Chukamoema, Baram Kundrok. I mean, they, and the, but the point is those place names, the paired names actually roll off the tongue. They do, they do. And that's an indication that these are, whilst they might look like two places on the map, they're really sort of single communities on the river areas. As a, as a kid growing up in the northeast, it, it took me quite a while before I realised Corowa Rutherglen wasn't wasn't one word. It was actually two two separate towns. So there you go. Yeah, and, and in fact, often if you look at the sort of netball and football teams or the cricket teams, that'll give you a fair clue as to the the degree of connectivity. In fact, I'm talking with some of the Melbourne team recently that were trying to make sense of you know how do you decide what's a border community because it's a you know there's no sort of hard and fast rule, but we're thinking one way to do that is actually to map the sport leagues and it gives you a sense of which you know which towns and which leagues you know cross those magic lines and which don't mm. now so many of our country sporting leagues are based around rivers aren't they the goulburn league the ovens and murray and of course the murray being a river yeah. and a border give us maybe a practical example would be helpful for people i know we spoke earlier about uh, responsible service of alcohol licensing just uh, i think that was a tangible example of how people experience these these cross-border issues in really connected towns 
that's one of the sort of what we call the classic border issues that in the world of liquor licensing, so it's just one example, but, you know, the two states have somewhat similar arrangements around liquor licenses and, you know, to work in a bar, you, you need to do an RSA, a responsible service of alcohol. So you'd, you'd often do that, you know, for example, through a TAFE or something, be a short course. They have the same names. The, the, the training you do is probably 90 plus percent same but we're in an environment where you could get one in new south wales you couldn't use that in victoria or you get one in victoria you couldn't use in new south wales and of course in take a town like chuka moama you know fairly significant tourist town so there's a lot of venues where you know rsas are important and if you live there there's a fair chance you're going to work in more than one venue so you find people having to do the same training twice over even though it's effectively very close to the same thing or, you know, licensees having to, you know, run two different systems. Even the little signs on the bar, you know, if you remember, there's a little thing they'll have on the wall in the bar saying, you know, if you're under 18, you can't get served and, you know, some of the other rules. And, and they look the same, but they're not the same. And, and so there are some slight differences in the rules, but, you know, differences that can be quite important. And it's just a degree of complication and cost and time that you have to spend dealing with it. It affects businesses, but it affects individuals. You think of bar workers in some of these towns. There are two two groups of people who are, depending where you were, quite represented in that. One being students in certain towns and the other being single mothers. So they were the, the most predominant source of bar staff. And so having to be hit up for two courses and two, you know, the cost of two courses and the time of two courses to more or less do the same thing was, was quite a challenge. And, and those differences were not, they weren't intentionally designed to be different. It's not like one state said, let's just be different to the other state to annoy people at the border. They've just grown up in a in a way that ends up different. And, and in that case, we actually got, we got staff from the, the two state regulators to come to Moama. Uh, sat them down in, in, it was actually in the Moama Bowls Club and some people in Chuka Moama through the committee for Chuka Moama, they, they pulled the right people in the room. And we just went through their stories. And so we had a person who managed the shift at, at the Bowls Club. We had a, a HSC student from New South Wales who worked in bars on both sides, had a, a chef, we had a pub owner, we had a person who um, looked after a local football netball club. So all different walks of life. And they just ran through their stories of, of what they had to face just to deal with this particular little world. And it was really interesting to see the reaction of the, the regulator staff out of Melbourne and Sydney, who, you know, probably fair to say they, they just weren't aware of these, these changes and what it meant on the ground. And in fact, I, in, in some respects, I, I think I could say they were making changes before they'd left the room. So, and that was a really positive experience that they, once they realised what the impact of this, they were, they were looking for solutions. But it was, you know, and this goes to the heart of my role, the, the task is helping people come to that realisation. And that's not just writing a report, you know, it just sits on a desk somewhere in Melbourne. It's, in that case, it was bring them to the border and meet. It's not about meeting me, it's about meet the people who are actually affected and hear their story. And then you find that, for the most part, people are then pretty willing to try and have a go at improvement. Clearly, 
those differences create a cost element for people. They create a pain and nuisance. Um, but that's probably understating, isn't it? They create a real hassle and, and time cost for people as well. I wonder if you'd also talk just a bit about the way that these communities work together and often often as sort of a one town, even if there are two names for either side of the border. And sometimes it can be a bit more profound than that, can't it? It's actually really important to these communities to be together. They're very interconnected. The networks are really important. And actually, in some ways, the, the challenges can be even a bit more profound than just cost and hassle at its worst can serve to, to prevent those connections. Oh, that's right. And it's one of the unfortunate impacts of the the border restrictions that we've had through COVID that they serve to separate some of these communities, even though you might be able to get permits and and whatnot, but it just becomes challenging to cross the border. You've got to get permits, you've got to line up, you get stuck in the traffic jam and it it starts pulling apart some of these communities. And, you know, and as I was saying before, you, if you look at some of those sporting teams where you have the combined teams, that that's a pretty strong sign of connectedness. And this pulling apart, I, I do worry a bit that you know, even once the restrictions are gone, which we hope is not perhaps not far away, but you know, it would be really hate to see that that separatedness was was an enduring impact of that, where people start, you know, because you start wiring into your head, oh, it's just a bother to go. In my case, say to go to Albury. Well, it's not a bother to go to Albury, but over the last few months, it, it certainly has been a bother. And you wouldn't want to see those sort of relationships pulled apart more permanently because one of the smart things and the clever things here is that it makes sense to share resources and it makes sense to share infrastructure and all that sort of thing. And, and you know, probably over the journey, that's been a challenge in some of these pairings. But, you know, there's a, a great example here in Albury, Wodonga, where the two councils and particularly through the two mayors have put together a you know two towns or two cities one community document which is a strategy but it's also a statement of that togetherness that yes when you know it might be two different dots on a map and all that sort of thing but you know it's it's really one combined community of roughly a hundred thousand people and that's the statement of what Albury Wodonga is and that's why you know we, we try and normalize talking about Albury Wodonga not talking about Albury or Wodonga and of course, these recent experiences sort of been a bit of pulling apart of, of those sorts of things. Why don't we turn to the recent experience? I'm aware that there's a, a great deal of complexity in this, but I wonder if you could sketch us at a high level what the experience has been like for border communities on both South Australia and New South Wales borders. How has the system worked and, and how has it evolved in terms of the border towns setups? And just maybe sketch us a, a broad picture of how the restrictions are working. Yeah, look, it's it's been a kind of an interesting journey. So South Australia introduced restrictions in March, so quite a long time ago. Although probably for the first couple of months, their restrictions were, I mean, they were significant, but they were still kind of a little bit open-ended in some respects. So there was still a degree of movement flexibility and whatnot. But then come through to June and, you know, into what was happening in Victoria, New South Wales then for the first time introduced restrictions and South Australia at about the same time started stepping up its restrictions. And so what we stepped into with both was defined zones and lines on maps and categories of permits and, you know, they were online application systems. And and it was interesting because these things were being built rapidly. The rules were being built and drafted rapidly even the questions of what categories should you have and what exemptions should there be, that was all being built on the run because, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to get all that right in, in one go. 
And then we've also seen uh, through the journey, you know, each state has sort of been changing their rules, either tightening them or opening them almost fortnightly for that entire period. So it's been very hard for border communities to get their heads around what, you know, just when you think you understand the rules, they change again or the, you know, the map shrinks or the, the map grows. And it's that sort of impact, and as I was saying before, that it just makes crossing, if you can at all avoid it, you just kind of don't do it because it just becomes too hard and you're worried about getting it wrong and maybe, you know, fine or something. So it's been a, a really interesting journey. And look, I'd, I'd have to say, particularly in on both these borders, in perhaps the more remote or smaller locations, it's been a problem because if you go to an Albury-Wodonga, you know, very interconnected towns, but there are at least a lot of services in both towns. It's not the complete set, but there's, you know, there's sort of enough. But if you go on the SA border, you go to Murrayville, so a very small town on the Victorian side, very connected with Pinaroo on the South Australian side. In fact, that's where you get fuel. So when they lock that border down, and if they lock it down, particularly if it's very tight, then if you're in Murrayville, you're sitting there saying, well, I can't even get fuel now. I have to drive like a 100-kilometre round trip the other way to find fuel. Or if you go up into the mountains of East Gippsland, people often forget there's a non-river section of the border with New South Wales. There are localities up there such as Bonang and Tubbet. I mean, they're not towns. There's no, there's no shops there. The nearest shop is in Delegate in New South Wales. And for a period, just because of the way New South Wales drew the map through it for a particular time, they were not even able to get border resident permits. So they couldn't get to their own shop. And to go the other way to find a shop, you had to probably a four-hour round trip almost to Orbost just to go to the shop. Whilst you get a lot of focus on your Chukamoamas and Aubrey Wodongas, but it's really, for me, it was those really small, sort of remote or remote in a Victorian context, I guess, those areas that were really quite a worry. And, and, and also the fracturing there is quite a worry. Now, they're small populations and it doesn't take many, let's say, fractured relationships for it to have a significant impact on the entire population. Oh, indeed. That's a significant volume of the community isn't it on either side of the border and risks around even just isolation or the smallest of some of those uh, communities are, yeah. are very real i'm imagining too as you're speaking that the compounding nature of the complexity as well so you, you've you've got to think about the the permit system and, and which permit you need you've got to think about how you keep your border residency uh, requirements and and make sure you're fitting with those rules and then that's just to get you across the border on. And once you get over there, you've also got whatever the set of rules are that you need to abide while you're over there and the, and the different ones when you come. There's actually a compounding layer of complexity, you know, there's a, a series of steps just to get you across the border. And then, then you've got to think about what you do when you get there and when you come back as well. Yeah, and, and you could have people carrying simultaneously four or five permits because, you know, one we managed to get with New South Wales, like, created a remote area permit so you could at least those people in boning for example could get to the shop but it only let you go to the shop if you did anything else you were then breaching your permit so then you might have to get a, an agriculture permit or a critical worker permit and then there might be a separate education permit for the kids to go to school and, and you know you were having to carry all of them and each one had different conditions and they had different geographical boundaries of where you could go you know when you look at it, it was kind of ludicrous it was a characteristic of a system that's being built on the run. An idea that probably seems quite simple if you're sitting back in a, a capital city, but for the people on the border, in the end, they're the ones who cop it. And even just practically speaking too, I imagine just the communication challenge. Of, you mentioned, you know, if you've got 
four or so different sets of rules from two different jurisdictions. If one of those change once a month, that's a change every week that you've got to deal with. Yeah. What have your observations been about people's level of kind of awareness and, and understanding during this period? Has that been a challenge? And, and I suppose also, what does that mean for their ability to comply with what are really important restrictions in terms of preventing the spread of this awful virus? Yeah, and I think that's right. That was quite challenging. And, and look, a lot of the work I've been doing is actually just trying to help people understand the what rules applied to their situation. And you know, over the journey, the office received several thousand inquiries from people dealing either with the New South border or the South Australian border. What you notice out of that is the, I mean, there are some areas where internet access is still a theory. So, you know, are you putting, you know, the, the old state, oh, but you can see it on the internet as well. Well, no, they can't. <laughs> I think the expression you gave me the other day was uh, the internet was something that they read about in the paper. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I know it's certainly up in those, in the mountains of, you know, not huge mountains, but up in that northern part of East Gippsland. I mean, they tend not to talk about black spots with mobile coverage. They talk about white spots. That's the spot where it actually does work. You know, if you drive up that hill, you can get a signal. So getting that information out in those areas is really quite challenging. But the other part, even in an area where you did have that access, people were having to navigate this combination of whatever the Victorian restrictions anyway might have been at the time, plus the either the New South Wales or the South Australian border restrictions, and trying to map them together. And one, and one of the things I think we've seen, and, and I certainly saw through that, was the information made available by each state was always different. It used different language. And people were having to sort of navigate multiple websites in different states and then, you know, hope that they could find the right information because often that wasn't easy and then sit it side by side and work out, well, okay, what do I do? How do I get to here? How do I get to there? And sometimes I was getting inquiries about multiple border crossings. So I'd have people from Tasmania needing to get to Queensland who'd contact me and say, how do I do that? And I say, all right, so what's Tasmania's rules? What's Victoria's rules? What's New South Wales rules? What's Queensland's rules? And try and sort of put together a, here's what you have to do and here's the order in which you have to do it. And I'd always have to sort of overlay that and say, look, this is as best I can tell because even doing it regularly and the fact that these things were changing just made it difficult. And I think there's a lesson in that about thinking about the consumer of that information in the way we package it. You know, and this is right across the country, but I think often it felt like it was written almost for the person writing it. Yes, we'll dump all the information in there and we'll just keep dumping more and more. But whether the consumer could ever actually make sense of that and, and make sense of it together, that was I think that's one of the questions that I have coming out of this. I think it's a, a good segue into where I was going to go next with questioning. As you're speaking, I'm wondering how much the experience during the COVID pandemic is a sort of chance to highlight or, or even a, a sort of intense microcosm of the other sorts of issues that you deal with. It sounds like actually the experience of COVID-19 restrictions is not profoundly different to the RSA example you gave a few minutes ago. It's just impacting more people. It's They're more significant and obviously much higher profile. Is that the right way to understand it? It sounds like it's a sort yeah. of a hotbed example of many of the issues that you deal with day to day. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. With the work pre-COVID, we're sort of, you know, because we're collecting sort of several hundred border issues, but we're looking through those and seeing what are the patterns, like what are the common causes as best one can tell for some of these issues. And um, 
and we sort of map that out. And you're right, the when you then look at the experience with the restrictions here and all the issues that came up with that, it's effectively the same experience repeated. It's just at a highly visible and intense scale. And so some of the lessons we've mapped over this journey are what could you do to avoid creating border anomalies or if you've already created one or someone did a long time ago, what can you do to, to sort of deal with that? And really the, the lessons are, are pretty common and a couple of things we've found over this journey are that almost the practice of thinking about the border. And, and I, the way I frame it is, is, do we ask the border question? So when we're doing policy work or design work or we're doing some regulation making or even just designing a service, it doesn't seem, from what I've been able to find, it's not very common that people think about the border. And therefore, as in the world of RSAs, we come up with a system, and it might be a fine system, but the differences at the border are going to create friction for people living at the border. And we just don't factor that into our, our build. And as is usually the case, it would be much better to deal with these things in the design end and not create them in the first place than have to come back later and try and fix them. So what, what I wrap up is saying, well, ask the border question. You know, I've been playing that back in, in my case, into Melbourne to say, well, that's really one of the key learnings here, that we could avoid a lot of this, not all of it, but we could avoid a lot of it, we could smooth a lot of it. And if we are, in the end, for whatever reason, if we do have to create a difference, and we do have to therefore create some degree of anomaly, let's at least know we're doing it. It's a deliberate choice. We know we're doing it. We know the reasons we have to do it. But even then, you can say, well, okay, we might have to have rules that are different or, or some framing that's different. But if we know that up front, our implementation, we might be able to find ways to smooth the experience. It might be better information or mapping the two systems together. Or That's clearly a learning out of the border restrictions, but it's a, a, an underlying story to just about every border anomaly you come across, whether a new one or an old one. It's a really crisp way of saying it too, I think, asking the border question. I think we are policymakers in Victoria. We're getting slowly better at... Um, asking questions of diversity and difference in individual we're slowly getting better probably too slowly i'm sure but getting better at asking the question about how does this impact not only the economy but the environment not only different ethnic groups different people from different backgrounds how does this impact women uh, as opposed to men or families people with disabilities we're slowly getting better at asking some of those questions i wonder if the, the border question it fits nicely into that if, if we get it in there yeah and, and look it's not a hard question to ask it's not you know, if, if you add that question to your list of questions, it's not that you've created yourself another Mount Works. It's just asking a question that's, I think, fair to ask and good practice to ask. And, and, I, and I do often make the point to people, it's not the same as asking the regional question. Because often our processes, our, you know, our RIS um, guidelines, they do usually require people to ask the regional question. But that's a different question. And, you know, you can, you can ask and answer a regional question still without thinking about border at all. And that's why I tend to call out the border as a, as a different question. And look, the other thing that comes with that, when you start doing that, you also then start thinking about very simple things like, well, gee, if I want to look at the border, it means I've got to look at what the next state does. How do they do it? Or do they do it? And then I've got to ask questions. Oh, I wonder who my counterpart is. Have I ever met them? Have I spoken to them? Have I, you know, have, I, have we even swapped notes? Because you might find that you can actually learn something off your counterparts. So just there's this 
set of practices and relationships that then flow from asking the border question. And we've found certainly through this, this restriction period, because you know, issues come up all over the place, it was really interesting that you know some agencies have just fantastic relationships with their counterparts. It's part of their core business. It's a regular thing to do, and that's great. But then others, they they sort of they might know who the counterpart is, but they've not really kept in contact. And so that often the work I was doing with people was helping them rebuild those connections because they needed them to be able to work through what's going on with these restrictions and you know, how does our part of of the economy or our part of society, how do we sort of find a way through them? Mm. I mean, that is something that living in a federation, right, that's supposed to be one of the hallmarks of our system is the ability to learn from other jurisdictions and apply it backwards. So the other thought that came to mind as you were talking too was just I wonder whether if we did ask that broader question a bit more often, we may still decide that we need differences, but I suspect the required differences would be much smaller than the actual differences. And I think you've spoken earlier, actually, when we were preparing for this conversation about actually often some of the real painful differences are ones of practice rather than design necessarily. Do you want to say just a little bit about that? Yeah. When you talk to people about, you know, border anomalies and whatnot, like the classic ones that come up are, you know, regulatory, you know, different rules, different registrations or whatever. But actually, when we've gone through the several hundred that have been raised, it's interesting that there are far more where you actually can't find a rule. They're often blamed on rules, but when you go looking for it, well, there might be a vague connection to a rule, but it's not really about the rule. It's actually just the, the way things are done, the, so the, the practice, the, the service design, rather than really being about rules. That's interesting because those are often harder to change. You might think rules are hard to change, but at least there's kind of a known process for that to at least have the argument about it. But if you're trying to change practice, you could be up against sort of deeply ingrained cultural practices of government agencies and trying to get either party to sort of make a shift or an accommodation is not necessarily easy. But I think the evidence we've found shows that it's probably, at least in those things that already exist, that's where the payoff is. But I think in either case, whether it's practice or, or regulation, it's still always the case that if you could design it out at the front, it would be so much better and so much more efficient than trying to you know, tidy it up on the other side. I want to shift a little bit and just ask you about your experience and your role over the past well, six months or so. We, you mentioned briefly at the start, while the more stringent lockdowns weren't quite as significant in the country, certainly a big impact, particularly on movement. Your role undoubtedly involves a lot of travel, a lot of meeting with people. What's been the experience of being the cross-border commissioner during a physically distant time? What, what have you learned? It's been a challenging period, as it has for you know, so many people. I mean, I think you know, we've all learned that using your Zoom or Microsoft Teams and the like, they're really great tools and you can still keep a lot of connectivity going that way. But they don't replace everything. And, you know, it's, it's sort of been, I guess, about six months really since I've been able to be on the road in any meaningful way. And particularly for our remote or more remote areas, there, there is a challenge there that just trying to do things through the remote methods, it's not quite a full replacement. And particularly, there's quite a few areas where they often don't get visited by people, probably wouldn't see a minister very often or at all, probably a long time since they'd see a, a premier or a prime minister. And so it's quite important to some people that you do actually visit them in their place. And so, you know, the fact that that's not been possible has, has that's probably been the part that's been the hardest to deal with because 
these tend to be the smaller localities. They kind of miss out a lot anyway. That's the part I'm looking forward to most when, when we finally can get on the road is to reconnect with those areas. At a personal level, it's probably the part I miss the most. But I think leaving that aside, just in terms of the role, you know, places like Orbiwodonga and Chukamoama and Portland, Mount Gambier, which is my second biggest border pair. When there are issues, those places always will get thought about because of the numbers are, are big in those places. But on the other hand, those places also at least have a fair bit of capacity to speak on their own behalf. Whereas those smaller and more remote places, it's not that they're not able, but they certainly are, but it's just smaller and it's harder. And so I do tend to bias my work, my effort for those people. Yeah, so trying to find a way to deal with that in this non-travel environment has been quite a challenge. I think that's highlighting something really significant. I think, I mean, people in rural Victoria are used to doing things remotely that, yeah, particularly when they're engaging with Metropolitan and Melbourne, there's a certain degree to which they're used to that. And, and some places... You mentioned connectivity issues before are certainly alive, but others are used to it. I think there's a really important point, though, that you've hit on there. It just, I guess, the, the cultural and, and value significance of coming together. I wonder whether all this is over. Metropolitan Melburnians are keen to get away from other people, where it's actually a really significant part of rural culture is coming together. That's an important thing to do, and that means physical. And I think you've spoke quite eloquently about that. That's actually quite critical to how we operate yeah, and that's why I think whether it's a border restriction or, or any other kind of restriction, you know, the impacts on those communities really, I, I think that should be the first place where the ideas are tested because the impact proportionally is just so much greater, you know, because if you're in a fairly sparse area, the value of that in those areas is very strong. I was speaking with a group recently, and, you know, talking about the experience with border restrictions and what worked and what didn't work. And a lot of it was more about the operations and whatever and now, there's all these fancy solutions with QR code readers and you, know, you can use your mobile and, and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I sort of say, well, you know, if you're going to test that, the place to test it is Hayden's Bog Road between Boning and Bendock, a little road in the, in the hills with not great mobile coverage. You know, if it works there, then it'll work at Albury-Wodonga. But don't start at Albury-Wodonga or Chickamauma because you'll probably find your solution doesn't work in those those smaller places. You know, it kind of turns, um, probably turns the way people would tend to think or tend to approach it on its head. That's very well said. The comms advice in me would say that asking the border question is probably a snappier way to put it than seeing if this works on the Haywood Bondong. I've got the name <laughs> road wrong. I'll forget yeah. it. My guest today has been Luke Wilson, uh, the Cross-Border Commissioner for Victoria. Luke, thanks, for, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Tom. It's been my pleasure.